It's Friday, September 18th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, a new news outlet reporting on gender, politics, and policy. We talk to the 19th's Emily Ramshaw about how to build a new newsroom, what gaps she believes the 19th can fill in the news landscape, and how to address the all-too-frequent lack of diversity in journalism. Then it's time for Tough Questions. Our CEO, Suzanne Nossel, talks about playing defense when it comes to disinformation, the Justice Department's crusade against John Bolton, and how virtual campuses are struggling to protect free expression. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on The Pen Pod. This August, the country celebrated the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, securing the right to vote for all regardless of gender, or at least in theory. The 19th also happens to be the name of a new reporting outlet that launched around the same time. Uh, The 19th is a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom covering gender, politics, and policy. CEO and co-founder of the 19th, Emily Ramshaw, joins me now. Emily, welcome to the Pen Pod. Hey, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. So congratulations, of course, on the launch. Um, Why the 19th and why now? Sure. I mean, so this all started for me, honestly, four years ago during the last presidential election, uh, you know, when we had Hillary Clinton on the ticket and there were so many headlines around electability and likability. And was she too shrill? And was she soft enough? And was she compassionate enough? And I was on maternity leave with a baby girl in that moment. And it might have been the hormones talking, but I just felt an enormous amount of rage at the fact that in 2016, we were still having those types of conversations. And I thought to myself, you know, God, would wouldn't it be amazing if we had a news organization really that put women's voices front and center uh, and eliminated all of this other noise? And then I went back to sort of the, the you know, mundane life of trying to raise a newborn. Um, <laughs> and three years later, the conversation just sort of popped back up for me. We were seeing these exact same sort of stereotypical headlines uh, facing an electorate where we had, you know, more women than ever on the 2020 campaign stage. And it just felt like a moment. And I thought to myself, my gosh, you know, if I don't do this right now, four more years are going to pass and this dialogue is going to be even worse. So uh, this year we launched the 19th, uh, the country's first nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, really aimed at elevating the voices of women, uh, in particular, the women's electorate. Yeah. I mean, so all of those, that combination is unique, but of course the nonprofit newsroom isn't necessarily new, you know, at Pen America, we've actually been tracking, you know, sort of local journalism and, and journalism uh, at large um, that's been facing, you know, these incredible economic pressures, shuttering newspapers, you know, making communities um, sort of devoid of, of news and news coverage. You know, why the nonprofit model and why did you see it was the right approach to covering these issues? Yeah. So I spent the last 10 years as the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, which is truly uh, has sort of established the gold standard business model for sustainability in local news. And as we all know, local news is the area where the business models are being the hardest hit. And so I sort of drink the nonprofit Kool-Aid. I believe that it's Mm -hmm. the way to 
go. But, you know, we weren't sure we were going to build a nonprofit when we started thinking about the 19th. And then there were some deal breakers for us. And those deal breakers were, you know, I believe that journalism ought to be free, that it's a public service, and I don't want anyone to face a barrier to entry to, to access it. I also believe that journalism should be free to distribute and free to republish. So, you know, that was a deal breaker for us. And uh, as you may have heard, you know, we already have uh, all of the Gannett newspapers can run our journalism for free. So 260 regional markets are already running the 19th work. Univision is translating our work into Spanish and distributing it. Uh, for us, it was critically important that our journalism be as widely distributed as possible to the most diverse audience possible. And that was another reason our business model needed to be a nonprofit. But the third piece I would say for me particularly is that I wanted to build a newsroom where uh, our journalists were really well compensated for their work and where we could provide the kind of benefits that I think all too often keep women from really advancing to the highest levels of this field. So things like six months of fully paid family leave, four months of fully paid caregiver leave. So you can spend the last four months at your mom or dad's bedside. You know, we know what the sandwich generation hits women the hardest. And, and something that was novel until a few weeks ago, which is fully remote uh, workspaces, uh, fully remote, you know, flexible opportunities for our staff members to work wherever they had the best childcare or elder care set up. Those things combined at the end of the day made the business model look like a nonprofit to us. We're not, none of us are going to get rich doing this, but we're going to mm -hmm. provide what we hope is the gold standard for an American newsroom. I, you know, and I imagine, obviously, you know, the, there's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Obviously, this has been in the works for a long time, but it just so happens that you're launching, you know, at a moment when there's a real reckoning happening in journalism, not just on the economic side, but also about who's telling what stories, who has a platform and who doesn't. Um, you know, how are you all confronting the big changes that are happening in journalism and in particular um, for, for women of color? Yeah. So we're we're tackling this head on. But to be honest, we were tackling this actually before this current sort of national reckoning that's happening in newsrooms. You know, when we um, a year ago, when we first sort of assembled our dream team for the 19th, we we didn't even know we were going to call this the 19th. We knew we liked the name the 19th. But as we batted mm -hmm. it around, we kept saying, but the 19th Amendment didn't extend really to women of color. You know, it took another four right. years well into the civil rights movement. How does that work if we want to call ourselves the 19th? And one of our colleagues, Aaron Haynes, uh, piped up right away and said, it's like the 19th Amendment, but with an asterisk. And suddenly all of us, it was like a light bulb went off. And we realized that for us, what was front and center to our mission and our journalism and our storytelling was the asterisk. It's people who are on the fringes. It's people who have been, um, you know, just kept out of our democracy. And so all of our storytelling, if you've noticed it at all, focuses on the asterisk, the people, the women the other underserved minorities that are on the fringes. Um, but beyond that, our journalism and our newsroom highly reflects the diversity of the nation's women, the gender diversity of America. Um, you know, our newsroom is uh, overwhelmingly women of color. I'd say 75% of our, our editorial staff is, is women of color. We also have, you know, uh, people who don't identify as women on our team. We have, you know, men and gender non-binary folks on our team. And so that sort of diversity is really important to us. So that's a long-winded way of saying before this national moment, this was critical to us. And it's it has been really incredible to get to build a newsroom from scratch without sort of that institutional baggage and to do it right from day one. It's really heartening to hear that the asterisk was not some like brainchild of a marketing firm, that it, <laughs> that it had such an organic story. I love that. Yeah, 
Well, you know, so speaking of the fringes, I mean, you know, in in a concrete way, you know, what is the what is the void that you all see in the current reporting landscape that you think the 19th can fill? What are the, the kinds of stories or the kinds of stories either that you've already been reporting or that we can expect to see from the 19th in the months ahead? You know, for us, it is storytelling that aims to elevate voices that we don't hear enough. And that's not the day's news, but pink, right? Like that is a really serious take on the way that women and other underserved minorities are disproportionately affected by so many of our country's institutions. You know, I mean, just look at COVID, for example. And we know that COVID has led to what is truly the first female recession ever. You know, this this, this pandemic is disproportionately affecting uh, women's economic abilities, their livelihood their ability to stay in or out of the workforce. Uh, if you look at, you know, the way that women are presented in elective office, we know that women are still far underrepresented in those arenas where the biggest decisions get made, you know, the COVID uh, task forces that have next to no women in the room, like this is still a thing. And, and newsrooms remain gendered. Uh, and, you know, 70% of politics and policy editors and reporters are men, the overwhelming majority are white men. Um, you know, this is no offense to white men, but those are the people deciding what's news and what isn't, whose voices are elevated, which experts are quoted, whether those stories play on the front page or the homepage. Uh, you know, we're we're working to level that playing field by providing a place where the stories that most deeply affect women's lives are the main course and not a side dish. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me just ask finally, because we're a literary organization, what are you reading right now? <laughs> I am reading so many things right now that we have finally gotten through this uh, this crazy week. Um, you know, I am I'm reading an incredible uh, book by uh, Elaine Weiss that is on suffrage, suffrage centennial in this moment, uh, and I highly recommend you all check it out. It's a really it's almost a thriller on how uh, the Nineteenth Amendment was ratified. It really takes on the way that um, that that race played into those conversations and that white women achieved. Uh, the vote in many ways on the backs of and at the expense of Black women. Uh, and so I, I highly recommend tuning into it. It's called The Women's Hour by Elaine Weiss, and it's just a phenomenal and nuanced and thrilling look at the way that the, the 19th Amendment was ratified in this country. Amazing. Well, I will run that walk. And of course, um, you can check out all of the great reporting that the 19th is doing right now. Um, and of course, while it's free, um, obviously, there are, you can become a member, you can donate to the 19th as well. Emily Ramshaw is CEO and co-founder of the 19th. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Disinformation, it's the watchword for all of us in the free expression world as we head into this totally upside down election season. For more on how we cope with all that's coming our way, I'm joined by PEN America CEO Suzanne Nossel for our weekly Tough Questions conversation. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So I know there's so many things to worry about when it comes to voting, who to trust, uh, when you get your ballot, whether it's safe to go to your polling place. How do we warn voters against disinformation that's floating around about the, uh, the that's floating out around out there without discouraging voters from actually voting look there is a, a kind of epic flow of disinformation we're seeing stories by the day of distortions when it comes to mail-in ballots voter fraud doctored videos of candidates 
we at PEN America are sort of firing on all pistons, doing public education webinars to alert people to the dangers of disinformation, how they can avoid becoming a vector. We'll be releasing some fantastic videos to spread the word. We released a tip sheet just last week that goes through how to engage family members or neighbors on issues of disinformation. It can be a tough conversation. People can get defensive. Sometimes they're locked into their own alternative reality where they're talking to people on social media about conspiracy theories and they don't even engage with mainstream journalism that might point out the facts of the falsehood. So we're in a dangerous moment. I think there is no single solution to this. It's up to all of us to have the tough conversations with people we know who are veering toward the fringes and try to reel them back in through appeals to reason. There's also obviously a crucial piece uh, that social media companies bear responsibility for, which is you know how this information is spreading, who sees it, whether it's optimized within algorithms, where they draw the line in terms of what to take down, and they're making more decisions at a faster pace now. They're becoming somewhat more aggressive. There are also different line drawing calls that are being made by particular platforms. They don't always agree on whether a doctored video uh, crosses the line or ought to be considered within bounds as a form of satire. But I think we are absolutely reliant on them. And I'm glad to see steps like what Facebook has done in terms of at least elevating credible election-related information at the top of every feed. So now if you log into Facebook, you'll see information on where to vote, how to vote uh, in an election center that is at the top of every feed. And I think it's extremely important to put people on alert. Our, our campaign is called What to Expect When You're Electing 2020, because we think the more educated people are about the ways in which this election will be like none other, the less vulnerable they will be to disinformation and conspiracy theories. But it's it's a pretty uh, edgy situation uh, with real risks to our democracy. Yeah, and I think anyone who tells you they know exactly what to expect is probably not telling you the truth. Um, but yeah, I think it's 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 right that we, we sort of have to wade through a lot of it. I, I want to switch over to uh, a Justice Department um, piece of news this week. Uh, officials there said they would open a criminal inquiry into John Bolton's uh, tell-all book, um, particularly over allegations that uh, Bolton disclosed allegedly classified information. Um, we filed a, a friend of the court brief in this case uh, when it went to court. Um, where, where do you come down on all of this? You know, it's interesting because when the trial judge, Royce Lamberth, in uh, the district court in Washington, was asked to rule on the request for an injunction that would have stopped the Bolton book from hitting stores over the summer, he concluded that the case for an injunction was unfounded, essentially because the book was already out there. It had uh, we found its way into a lot of people's hands. It was out of the warehouses, and he, he concluded that it was impossible to put the genie back in the bottle at that point. But what he did not find was that Bolton, uh, you know, was in the clear insofar as respecting the strictures as far as national security. And the book had been submitted to a clearance process. Bolton had been going back and forth with a particular official who was 
assigned to review his manuscript. Uh, he says that that process reached what that official indicated was its conclusion and that she had no further edits or changes to request. But the process was never formally concluded. And another level of reviewer said, look, this is still ongoing. We haven't given you the clearance. Bolton decided to go ahead anyway. And the trial judge had concerns about that decision on his part to violate the process and not wait for formal clearance and also about the substance of the book. And, you know, I think there are valid reasons to have national security review to ensure that former officials don't make disclosures that could harm American security. The issue in this case is that the White House has taken such a politicized approach to those clearances prolonging them, uh, seeming to deny them without basis. You know, in this case, uh, I think sort of ending its engagement with Bolton. And so it's very hard to judge. You know, may, there may have been officials who really were doing their job in the ordinary course and not subject to political pressure. But this White House has so clouded over its engagement with its critics that it, it's very hard not to look at virtually everything they do as an example of retaliation and reprisals against those expressing themselves in, in, in ways that the president disapproves of or those who are uh, casting him in a, in a negative light. I think what's particularly alarming about this criminal investigation that the DOJ has launched is that they're subpoenaing not just Bolton himself, but also the publishing house, Simon & Schuster, and Bolton's agent. And that clearly seems designed to cast a chill and intimidate anybody who might consider publishing a book critical of the Trump administration, because you know, who knows, you might find yourself embroiled in a criminal investigation. Right, right. The chilling effect is pretty severe. Um, so finally, you know, uh, I know obviously campuses, especially college campuses, aren't, aren't quite reopening. Um, and yet we're still seeing a, a trend that I know you have been following very closely of professors and other educators you know, really being punished for speaking out or for colleges and universities not taking a firm enough stance for the civil liberties of its faculty. We saw this at, play out at Skidmore College um, uh, just in recent weeks. Suzanne, how is this debate playing out more broadly, especially as we're in this kind of weird period of some campuses are open and, and some aren't, and a lot of this is taking place in the virtual realm? Yeah, look, we have seen over the last few weeks a marked escalation in the number of incidents of free speech flare-ups on college campuses, people being called out for things they've said, uh, demands for discipline to be exacted. You know, the case at Skidmore involved a professor who attended or was standing at the margins of a protest in town in support of the police and students then called for a boycott of his classes and demanded that the administration discipline him and the the leadership of the college issued a pretty tepid response uh, affirming his free speech rights but uh, not in a, a forceful way and yeah, that's really chilling. You know, people have the right to attend protests. This is on off hours. Uh, you know, he was going as a private citizen, and, uh, you know, it's nothing that he personally said. He didn't demean or denigrate anyone or harass anyone. And so the idea that that simply attending uh, a march could or, or a gathering, uh, an assembly, could be grounds for such repercussions is pretty chilling and alarming. And we see 
other instances of people who, for example, got involved in there was sort of a two-day strike uh, for social justice uh, last week, and some of the professors who took part in that are now being uh, attacked for violating work rules. And you know, it's just a very fraught, fractious moment. And I think it goes back to all the advice that we have amassed over the years as Pan American, the course of our work on campus free speech, our first report and campus for all, uh, and uh, the follow-up that we did a couple of years later, just last year, detailing how universities can respond to these censorious calls and how to adjudicate the issues in ways that are protective of legitimate concerns, particularly when it comes to students from historically marginalized groups who are particularly impacted by hateful speech and other expression that can make them feel less included and less uh, comfortable on campus. But while all the while protecting robust safeguards for free speech and academic freedom. And I think in the virtual world, it's really essential that campuses double down. I think there are all sorts of issues that arise in the Zoom classroom in terms of who feels empowered to take the floor. A lot of the verbal uh, and visual cues that you normally have to know that you have some support in the room and feel affirmed in speaking out on a topic are just not there on Zoom. And I think it takes a lot more to jump into the conversation. And that poses a potential risk for free expression as people uh, sit back and the conversation perhaps is, is dominated by those who have greater confidence, comfort level, uh, you know, are in a setting where they recognize uh, the professor and the classmates as uh, people that very similar to those they grew up with. And so I think we really have to bend over backwards to ensure that the shift to a virtual campus doesn't impair free speech. Yeah, and obviously this isn't going away uh, as this becomes even more uh, complicated into the fall. Well, uh, Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America, author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Great to have you as always. Thanks so much, Stephen. And that's our episode for Friday, September 18th. Join us Tuesday for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. Have a great weekend. See you Tuesday. Mm -hmm.